me in the book of Genesis. It is the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 16. So right there in the opening pages of the Bible, um, there is a Bible in the chair in front of you if you haven't got one with you. If you don't own one, please take that one home. We want you to have it. Genesis chapter 16, I'm going to read our passage for today, and I'm going to pray and commit our time to the Lord. Genesis chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Verse 6, But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness and the spring, uh, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here have I seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram, Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray, fam. God, we bring to you, Lord, our time in your word today. In this passage with so many oddities and uh, head scratchers, but through it and through some real painful experiences, you reveal yourself as the God who sees us in our afflictions. And Lord, we come before you, Lord, many of us feeling afflicted today by various circumstances, 
And Lord, we need to know, as Hagar found out, that you're a God who sees us. God, you see our community. You see our neighborhood. God, you see the brokenness of our city. You see the brokenness in so many homes. And Lord, God, I pray that this name of God, El Roy, would be a reminder, God, that you are a God who ever watches. And because of that, you care. And Lord, you look after us. So Father, work in our hearts. May your Holy Spirit speak through me with great precision today. God, um, Lord, may, may your Spirit bring healing to different heartaches and hope, Lord, to, to many, we pray. Bring us all before you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're like me, when reading this passage, you're kind of like, where are you going to go with this one? Uh, it, it, is, it is an interesting one. Um, as I get ready to talk about it, as I prayed here, the name of God we're looking at today in Hebrew is El, which means God, and Roy, which means who sees. The God who sees. In particular, as you see in this story, there's a lot of pain and heartache and sorrow that's happening in so many levels, and we're reminded that God sees in that. And um, this, this strikes pretty close to home as I think about what happened this week in our neighborhood, um, as I introduced already. On Monday night, Erica and I were sitting on our sofa, uh, just on a block from here, watching a movie, when we saw police cars just driving down the wrong way uh, of our one-way street. And at first, we, you know, I, I saw the lights, didn't think much of it, figured they're, they're after someone, after something. And then we saw a second one. I thought, what's going on? Walked out of the front door of my house, and um, we saw down the block a pretty, pretty sad scene. Um, a young man had been shot uh, in the chest and, uh, and died that day as he went to the hospital. Uh, a murder on our block this week. And um, our hearts just broke for our community. Uh, the Franklins, Lazare and Lynette live across the street from us. And so we, we quickly got together, um, texted some others in the neighborhood, walked over, met us at the house, and we prayed for our block. And just seeing the fear, the heartache, the sorrow, um, our, our hearts just broke. Broke for the families, 16-year-olds. It was a Steinmetz High School. And um, Erica and I and the Franklins went over just to love on the family and just, just bless them. And our hearts break because what, what do we do in those moments of life where what has happened is inexplicable and there's real pain? Um, you know, if, end of last week, I think it was that last Saturday, a two-year-old boy was shot and killed in Hermosa neighborhood 10 minutes from here. I mean, what, do you, what do you do? How do we explain this? Um, and so we've done a lot of soul searching this week. As I already had prepared to preach this message, I know God, God's timing is merciful in giving us answers to questions that sometimes we, we don't have answers to. And what we see is there is a God who exists, who sees. And this is why I want us to go out on the block after service today. For our neighbors to see that God sees their pain. For the family that we, Erica and I and the Franklin's had a chance to pray with, they lost their son, a brother, a grandson, to 
say, hey, there's a God who sees. For our other neighbors who are afraid and saying, man, what's going on? And say, hey, there's a God who sees. And not just there is there a God who sees, but there's a God who sees and then does something. In this story, we see this name of God revealed in a pretty sad way, but it's there to bring us hope in the midst of some inexplicable situations. Genesis 16 is a chapter where we see Abram and his wife Sarai try to take matters into their own hands, and it completely fails, and the result of it is hurting other people and someone, Hagar in particular, who fled in the midst of her hurt and had to find God um, in that wilderness time, or God found her better way to say it. To back up and give context to our story to make sense of it, we've got to understand where this is all coming from. This is before the nation of Israel had even begun to exist. God had given a promise in Genesis 12, verse 2, to Abram, saying, hey, I want you to leave your land. He lived out in a far land. Come to a land that I'm promising to you, and I will make you a great nation there. But of course, in order to become a great nation, he's got to have children. But we're given a detail as the story develops that Abram's wife Sarai was barren. But God tells him in chapter 15, verse 4, that I'm going to give you your very own son. It's not going to be uh, someone who's part of your household like a, a servant, but it's your very own flesh and blood. In chapter 15, verse 5, he says, number the stars, God tells him, so shall your offspring be. In chapter 15, verse 6, it says that Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram believed in faith in God's promises, though Abram entered Canaan, the promised land, at 75 years old. In chapter 15, verse 18, God says, to your offspring, I will give this land. So God gives Abram and Sarai a promise. Abram believes God's promise, but then something happens, and that something is called time. We're given a detail in chapter 16 that they had now been in the land for 10 years and nothing has happened. Abram's now 85 years old. Sarai is 75 years old. And they're starting to feel a little bit anxious about God's promise. And they create a shortcut, which ends up becoming a road trip. You ever done that in life? try to take a shortcut in God's plan and saying, this is taking me a lot longer. Erica and I love taking road trips, and we found out you've got to trust Google because if you look at the map and say, oh, there's a faster way, and I don't do it, that shortcut will become a longer road trip. Sarai says, I think I found a shortcut, Abram. And in verse 1, Sarai says, I got a, ch- uh, a servant. Her name is Hagar. She's an Egyptian. She can bear a child for me. So in verse 2, Sarai said to Abram, Now, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from, be- from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And it says, Abram listened to his wife, to the voice of Sarai. This is an ancient Near Eastern practice that had become very acceptable in the days of Abram and Sarai. They perhaps didn't even see it as a sinful practice. They said, hey, everyone's doing it. 
Um, this is happening a lot. Men would have multiple wives in order to have multiple offsprings, to have a great family, to help out and make in a great name. And so Sarai thought, let's go ahead and do this because God's been taking a little long here on fulfilling his promise. So what was an ancient Near Eastern practice now became the practice of God's patriarchal family. Sarai reasoned a plan. God gives us human reason to create plans, but when our reason is based on faulty information or assumptions, it leads us to the wrong places. Sarai does this. God, you're taking too long. You need an espresso shot to hurry yourself up here. Is God being slow? The answer is no. Is it being patient? The answer is yes. In fact, 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that, I should, that should, all should come to repentance. See, when God takes long in fulfilling his promises to us, it's not that he forgot. It's not that he's trying to figure things out, so give him a little more time. It's that God's plan is for him to unveil his promises in a slow timing. But it's his timing. I want us to personalize this in our own lives in ways that you've hurried things up before. You ever do groceries and say, I'm going I'm to bring all the groceries into the house in two trips, and you open your trunk and you got like 100 bags, but you're like, I'm going to do it, right? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm classy for that. I mean, I'm wrapping bags up to my shoulder, all the way down my arm, you know? And what happens is, a bag breaks, and you're thinking, was it worth losing that jar of pasta sauce? Or when you speed through traffic to get to work quicker, and you think, I'm going to hurry up the traffic here, and then all of a sudden you get your picture taken, and then it had the kindness to mail it to you. Or when you forgot about that assignment, and you're hurrying it up at school, and you don't really quite to get all the instructions there, and you forget to do something, you're turning it in with spelling errors, right? Hurrying up doesn't usually work. Or when you buy Ikea furniture, and you don't want to look at the directions because you got this, it'd be faster, right? I know y'all been there. Isn't it interesting that in these silly examples, we all know that rushing usually doesn't work. But when it comes to bigger life decisions, how often we rush God's will. And God's like, I gave you these little insignificant reminders, a, a $75 ticket, so you don't make a $10,000 poor investment because you didn't wait to hear from me. And so often in life, the little things that we rush, we don't listen to. And so when the big things happen, we're not waiting on God. Whether it's your career, financial, or relational. I love that Lazaric mentioned talking about relationships. Because um, I love talking about relationships. And I find that relationships typically are the place that many followers of Jesus err because they rush. They rush. They rush because they're looking for someone. They rush because they think they've found someone, but they haven't listened to God. 
And God gives us a lot of clarity as to his will. And sometimes we just don't want to wait for the timing of his will. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, which is like an idolatrous God? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? You see, what God has given us is instruction for men and women, young and old, when it comes to dating relationships. And what he makes clear here is don't date someone who doesn't know Jesus. And he says, don't date someone who's not pursuing Jesus like you are. Now, what's hard is, you know, Erica and I started dating. I was 15. She was 14 years old. I mean, we were mature. We were old. We were not, right? Um, God was extremely merciful to our foolishness because I had two standards as, as a young man. I had to be attracted to her, and she had to be a Christian. And by word Christian, I was like really broad, Right? <laughs> Like, did she ever use the word Christian? That might, that might qualify. Uh, and so thinking about maturity was nowhere on my radar. God was merciful in my foolishness. But, but you got to hear here. Um, if, if you are someone, an adult who's pursuing Jesus, and there's someone who claims to know Christ but isn't pursuing like you are, that, that's the same thing as being unequally yoked. Now, it's not with an unbeliever necessarily, but it was with someone who's not going to hold you up. In our parenting class uh, this summer, uh, Michael Jr., a comedian, gave a great example. Uh, if you all were in the class, you remember this. He said uh, whenever someone co- a guy comes to want to date his daughters, he, and he realizes that this dude is not where she's at spiritually, he says that he, sit, he sits the guy down. He's like, hey, you play basketball? And the guy's like, yeah, I play ball. He's like, all right. You ever play ball with someone who's worse than you? He's like, yeah. He's like, how does that do for your game? No, it doesn't help it. He's like, so what makes you think you're going to help my, wife, my daughter's spiritual walk? And it was like, uh, you know? Uh, and when it comes down to it, a lot of times we do this because we're rushing God's plan. I've sp- spoken with many uh, older singles who have this, this, this feeling that maybe all the good guys are taken. Maybe all the good ladies are taken. And then they rush God's plan and regret their decision. God is good, and he is merciful, and he helps us in our folly. But don't walk blindly into what God has made already clear. Abram and Sarai rushed God's will in a relationship, and it did not come out well. You know, sometimes I have people ask me, what if I've married somebody who is not a Christian? What do I do at that moment? Well, 1 Corinthians 7 gives us instruction. And Paul says, do not leave your unbelieving spouse. You love them well, and you love Jesus, and you pray that through your devotion to Christ, he would win her or him over. And this, this is the picture God gives us. Abram and Sarai speed up God's plan. They put an espresso shot 
in what seemed to be taking along. And then Abram is historically passive. Sarai's like, hey, Abram, here's my servant. How about you sleep with her, have a child, and it'll become ours, a new child of promise. And it just says here, just real simple in verse 2, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Abram, whom God himself said, from you, Abram, I'll do this. The same God who told Abram, look at the stars. I'm going to make her off me. This Abram, who believed God and it was counted as righteousness, has a gap in his thinking. And he lets passivity win the day. I, I just want, I want, to, I want to just press here. Uh, Brooke, men, we've talked about how passivity is, is toxic to our identity as men in particular. And we see how Abram listens to the voice of Sarai and doesn't stand for what he knows to be true. The language here parallels Adam and Eve in striking ways. Just as Eve rationalized the fruit, Sarai rationalized her maidservant. Just as Abram listens to the voice of his wife, Adam listened to the voice of his wife. And we'll see just in a moment, just as Adam and Eve blame shift, Sarai and Abram will do the same. It is part of our human struggle to want to be passive, but passivity is potent. Passivity is potent. By listening to the voice of his wife in this wrong way, he disregarded the voice of God. He went along with a a sinful practice because everybody was doing it. He thought that the way of sin would bring about a godly outcome. That's what happens when we rationalize apart from the truths of God's word and his promises. And what Abram doesn't do is hold on to God's promises. What Abram doesn't do is test this advice by the word of God. What Abram doesn't do is ask God if this is his will. It just sounded good, and he went with it. As we saw in the story, Hagar conceives, and now there's a problem. It says that Hagar looks at Sarai with contempt. We'll look at that in just a moment, what that all means. But look at verse 4. I'm sorry, uh, verse 5. Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. Sarai's having a problem now. She's like, look, see see what's happening here. Hagar's pregnant now, and now I've got a problem with this. She's looking at me with contempt. And Sarai goes to Abram saying, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And then Abram, not only is he passive, but now chooses to not accept responsibility. He says, she's your servant, Sarai. Do to her whatever you want. That's almost an exact quote. And so in Sarai's reasoning again, she deals harshly with Hagar. Isn't it wild how Sarai became a stumbling block to her husband's spiritual growth? 
and how her husband became a stumbling block to her spiritual health? Because they reasoned apart from God's promises and his word. Sarai is harsh to Hagar, and she flees. This is like a daytime talk show. I mean, you're like, what is going on here? We see that taking a shortcut will end up as a road trip if we're not testing our decisions against God's word. If we rush financial decisions, relationship decisions, career decisions, without saying, God, show me first. Show me, God. Let us wait. Let us wait on you, O Lord. Now we look to Hagar because this road trip takes a bit of a detour away from Abram and Sarai and to focus on Hagar. Now this is something that's really struck me over the last couple of years. My wife preached on this passage at a conference some years ago. And as she taught this and she was studying it, she was teaching me what she was learning. And I was like, man, I never saw it this way. Because a lot of times when I've read this story, I'm like, Hagar's the bad guy here. Because she looks at Sarai with contempt. The word contempt means that she was lowered. Sarai was lowered in Hagar's eyes. And what we don't know is in what ways. Many assume that Hagar kind of became prideful. I was able to do what you were unable to do. And walked around with that mindset which drove Sarai crazy. And that may have indeed happened. But the word can also mean that Hagar looked down on her, on Sarai, her her master, her mistress, for what she had done to her. We don't know necessarily what it is, but this we do know. Sarai failed miserably. Abram failed miserably. And then Hagar suffers miserably. She's treated harshly to the point where all she feels she could do is run away. Run away. Those in power over her took advantage of her social class, a servant. Isn't that striking? Hagar runs away into the wilderness, and there in verse 6, the angel of the Lord finds her, speaks to her, and she says, I'm fleeing away from Sarai. And the angel says to her, return to your mistress in verse 9 and submit to her. I believe the reason for this is not to continue the torture of Hagar, but because God knew Hagar could not survive in the wilderness. He's concerned about the woman who suffered. Not only is he concerned about the woman who suffered, he's also concerned about her unborn child. Because God says this in verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. Call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard, has listened to your affliction. God heard Hagar in her dark time. God goes on to talk about Ishmael, how he's going to be a wild guy. He's going to cause a lot of problems. That's true. But nonetheless, Ishmael's descendants will become a great nation, a powerful nation. But still in the midst of this, God sees the afflicted woman, her unborn son, and says, I've, I've still got a purpose for you. I've got a plan 
for you. And I love how Hagar receives hearing from God in the wilderness of her life, where many of us are at today. That wilderness time in life where we feel afflicted for various reasons as our neighborhood feels. She says in verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. See how personal she realizes her God is? He's looking after her. She calls the well Ber Lahai Roy, which means it's the God who looks, the God who sees at, the, at that well. You know, family, as we think about our own culture and where we're at as a country, I, I can't help but see how this passage speaks to what's going on. We, we, we've seen the, the popularity or maybe a better word, the, the importance of, of people and women in particular speaking up about those who've taken advantage of them through what's known as the hashtag MeToo movement. This is such a sorrowful, sad movement, but such an important one. Because when I think of Hagar, isn't this so much her story as well? The, the, she, she had no word to speak against this. She was a servant. And those who were over her imposed their will. Those culturally accepted. Uh, this, is what, this is what we see here. And what I love is how God helps her see that he sees her pain. The Me Too movement is so heartbreaking because it reveals how widespread so many women have been taken advantage of. And I know some of you even here in this room say, this is your story. My heart breaks for you. God's heart breaks for you. It reveals how difficult it is for women to speak up. And it's happened that sometimes years, decades later, but this movement has empowered women to share their stories, and I praise God for that. It reveals the corruption of the human heart of those who would take advantage of others. It reveals how lasting the pain is. It reveals how those in power feel justified in their actions or feel that their actions will be silenced because the afflicted have no voice. We've seen in our country how people's hurts have been politicized by different parties or dismissed. It's, it's a heartbreaking thing. It is sorrowful. But this is why I say it's important. Because it gives a voice to those who once believed they didn't have one. It holds accountable those who've taken advantage of others. It gives us a conversation with our children to have important conversations about what's safe and what's good and what's wrong and what's not good. But most important, it allows space for healing to happen now. And here's Hagar in the wilderness, pregnant, knowing that her son will never be accepted by Sarai, knowing that she's still at the end of the day a slave. And God says, I see you, though, in your pain. And even more so in his words, he tells her, through your son, I'm going to do something here. 
that I could even redeem your pain to accomplish purposes you would never imagine, to bring you hope when you thought there was none left. And I want to I speak to you here. If you are afflicted today in any way, know that there is a God who sees your pain that perhaps even only you see today. I love what God says in Isaiah 43 now, but he says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, God says. And what this is is a call to run to Jesus, who is the one who sees your pain. I hope you hear in today's message, God in his word saying, He loves you. He cares about you. He has redeemed you through faith in his son and will give you hope. We serve a God who sees family. And if there's any doubt in our mind, let's ask Elijah. After his victory in Mount Carmel, he became so afraid, thinking, I'm the only one left. And God meets him in that place and says, no, I've got plans still. Think of Jonah, who thought God couldn't see him on that ship. And God saw him all right and brought him back to his plan. Think of Daniel in that pit. Could God see him there? God saw him there. Think of Hannah, who cried out to God in her heartache. God saw her there. And God sees you and I where we're at. Scripture says in in 1 Chronicles or 2 Chronicles that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro. He's watching over us. He knows our inward thoughts. He knows our heartaches and pains. And he's also seen our greatest need. Galatians tells us when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, Jesus, to, to be born on this earth, to be a demonstration Not just that he sees, but that he's a God who does, who intervenes, who saw our greatest predicament, and that's our separation from him. Jesus says, it says that he saw the people, and he had compassion on them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He's a God who sees. He looked on our sin and brought salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection. And he looks on your pain, and he brings healing to it as well today. It's wild how this story unfolds. Abram and Sarai take a shortcut, which becomes a road trip. And we see that Hagar is the one who suffers along with Abram and Sarai. But even in the pain, God redeems it, and he gives us this name, El Roy. If we go out today, let's remember our God sees us in our pains. When you're in your bedroom, when you're at work, when you're in your car and you feel alone, God sees you. And he invites you to come to him, to come to him. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what Jesus offers us. He is the incarnation of God himself. El Roy in human flesh. 
and we can surely trust him, just as Hagar in her wilderness learned to trust him. Him who sees her and looks after her. So family, let's not take shortcuts. Let's not take shortcuts that end up in road trips. Let's look at God's word and say, God, speak to me in this journey. When you find yourself in pain, maybe because of shortcuts, when you find yourself suffering because of other people's evil, you cling to your God who offers you hope and healing and says, trust my will. It is good. It is right. It is perfect. I'm not slow. I know what I'm doing. Just trust me. Well, fam, we're going to close in a song here. And after we sing, uh, the Brook kids are going to be meeting us back up here. And I want us to go out into our neighborhood and to pray to the God who sees. And we need our blocks to know that our God sees us, that our God sees the affliction as he sees our own affliction. Let's rally together around one another and around our neighborhood, all right? Let's pray, fam. Yahweh, eternal God, I thank you that you are El Roy, the God who sees us. And Lord, we are just uh, saddened to know, God, that so oftentimes it's our decisions or the decisions of others that create so much suffering. But Lord, passages like this remind us, God, that even in that, God, you can restore and bring hope, Lord. So God, I ask that you would work in each of us today for each man or woman who is here, who is afflicted, who hurts, who's felt alone. God, may they know that you are so with them as you've never left their side. Lord, we pray this, God. We pray for your healing touch. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rise up to our feet, family. Prayer team, would you make yourself available as we